Hello and welcome to Bread the Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things and talking about the history of baking things. Um, and we normally like to start by talking about what we have been making and or baking. So what have you been up to? I made a lot of progress on the Mothra part of my Mothra versus Godzilla cross-stitch. Amazing. When you have a special interest and then you do a craft related to it, you just kind of sit there for hours and do it. <laughs> so I've, I've done one wing and the body and the head and honestly about half of the other wing at this point. Um, it is taking form. It is. She actually looks like Mothra now. <gasps> yes. That is excellent, and I enjoy it. I will probably have finished the moth for a bit by the time this episode goes up. So that, that will be viewable on my Instagram, I'm sure. You should share Mothra with everybody. I simply love her. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Uh, I am getting ready to go and bake gingerbread after we finish recording, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's it's getting towards that time of year. Although you can eat gingerbread any time of year. I'm not your boss. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I tend to make it about this time of year. And tomorrow is our last day on campus, like everyone together. So I was going to bake gingerbread to take in as a, a thing for my... Um, group oh that's really nice yeah. it is isn't it i am a, a, an a plus human um yes you are and everyone should be friends with me <laughs> the thing is it's true depending on the quality of my gingerbread i don't know it might be terrible <laughs> in which case i would let you off for not being my best friend um, but it's going to be fun. I love making gingerbread because you get to melt the golden syrup and the sugar together and it's like gloopy and delicious. And also the smell of the spices and it's just, it's just so time, you know, it's so winter time. No, I know what you mean. I, I always make sticky toffee pudding in December and only in December. And it's mm. a very similar feeling. <laughs> So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I have fun cutter shapes. So yeah. Um, right, so shall we go on to the I, I was gonna make a joke, but I'm not sure if it would reveal the topic of the episode if you want to okay reveal it. Do you want to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode? I do. Um <laughs> so yeah, when when this episode goes up the 19th of December 2021 is the 20th anniversary of the theatrical release of Fellowship of the Ring. My goodness. <laughs> and I feel a deep spiritual connection to Hobbits. So this is a very Can important I... date for me. <laughs> I just, I mean, it, it is of course a joyous day, but also it's been 20 years. Yeah, it's it's the same year that my sister was born, so I've been feeling it since her birthday. Oh wow! Um, 
Yeah, I'm going to talk about potatoes. Excellent. I also have something Hobbit related for local larder, but um, yeah, we'll get to that later. Tell me about potatoes. So I think the first question to answer is what is Tater's Precious? What is Tater's, eh? Um, So they are the tubers, which is big starchy masses that grow on the root of the Solanum tuberosum plant. That's a good name. Um, Yeah, so the wild species probably originated in Peru. Mm-hmm. And we think that it was probably um, domesticated in either Peru or Bolivia around eight to 5,000 years BCE. Oh, wow. Although the first... That's... Yeah, that's... Pe- people do genome things <laughs> to work out when different mutations happened, and I don't understand it, but it's very cool. Yeah, that's an old tuba. Yeah, ancient potato. <laughs> um, but the first physical evidence we have is from the uh, Chiripa people in okay. Anson, Peru, um, about 2,500 years BC. So we, we know that it was domesticated by then, and we have um, actually depictions from Antiplano, which is also in Peru, on vessels, like paintings on jars and things of potato plants. Wow. And we have potato-shaped ceramics. That is cool. I want to see an ancient potato-shaped ornament. Allow me to send you a picture. Yes, please. I love it. I don't know what that is for, but I love it. I I also do not know what it is, but yeah, um, I I will tweet that picture. That will probably be the clue for this episode. That would be a good idea. Yeah, it seems to have been the primary source of carbohydrates in, mm-hmm. again, sort of Bolivia, northern Peru. And, you know, similar to now, you'd have them boiled, mashed, stick it in a stew. <laughs> um, but also things like um, tokosh, which is a fermented potato pulp. And okay. chunyo, which is naturally freeze-dried potatoes. So you, you leave them out to sort of freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw Uh just with the weather and that forces the water out of them so they dry and shrivel up but they're still edible for years and they still have all of their nutrients and then you can store them because they get really okay that is incredible and yeah like i say it seems to have been a staple for a lot of um, pre-colonization South America, especially the Inca Empire. Uh, 
most cultures seem to have a main carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Um, and sort of in South America, you get a, a lot of the time it's maize, but when you can't get maize to grow, it seems to be potato. And that's that's okay. going to be a theme in the history of the potato. <laughs> um, but they're also found in uh, Patagonia, in the it's basically the southernmost limit of where we have archaeological evidence for pre-colonization agriculture in South America. We have potatoes. So it's it seems like potatoes were just incredibly important for south america as a whole mm -hmm. um and then as you might expect they make their way to europe with um spanish sailors so i've heard the story about potatoes being taken to the court of queen elizabeth I and like her trying to eat a potato raw and going like oh this is terrible is that true um, I haven't been able to find any reliable sources for that. Mm -hmm. It does seem, though, just in general, that people were reluctant to eat them, despite, you know, having seen native South Americans eating them. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a theory that it was because they are related to Deadly Nightshade also put people mm -hmm. off eating tomatoes for a very long time because it's all the same family hey okay i did not know that that's very cool but they they did quite quickly become a working class food so obviously some people were willing to to eat them <laughs> um there's mentions of basque fishermen using them in the 16th century what's catch fish no as as on board food. Oh, okay. <laughs> Unrelated to the to them being fishermen. They they just it just happened to be fishermen who needed, you know, <laughs> will last in a, basically a cupboard for a long time. That makes more sense. And I mean, as anyone that's found one sad potato at the back of the cupboard oh. will testify, it's you know, it's not that bad. It's fine. You scrape off the eyes, you potato. Yeah, so they seem to have got to Spain around 1570 in terms of like people actually eating them. But there's also, yeah, they seem to have spread pretty quickly because there is evidence of them being exported from the Canary Islands um, to Antwerp in the Netherlands in 1567. Wow. So it seems that people were basically, they got them from South America and then they went and did some colonialism in other places. They took the potatoes with them as a, an easy source of food. Okay. Um, and there seems to be people gifting them. <laughs> people gifting them to each other. That's very Stardew Valley. Yeah. Um, especially potato flowers. Oh. Although Philip II of Spain apparently sent potatoes to the Pope. Okay. I can't decide if that's a compliment or not. I mean, appar apparently it was a compliment. 
Are the top parts of the potato mildly poisonous, or did I make that up? No, they are, because again, it's related to Deadly Nightshade. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I mean, to be honest, if someone gave me a potato as a present, I would be pretty happy. Especially if they, like, carved a heart into it or something. There is a company that will send you... Yeah, you can pay them to send someone a potato with something written on it in Sharpie. Okay. Couldn't you just do that yourself for free? Oh, you absolutely could. But, you know. I guess if you don't happen to have a potato lying around... <laughs> um, but yeah, potato plants, if you leave them long enough, do produce a toxic fruit. Okay. Um, which contains a class of poison called uh, glycoalkaloids. Ooh. Which, yeah, are found in other plants in the same family. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems that while potatoes contained higher concentrations, and then that was gradually bred out. Although, this is leaping forward a bit, but it's relevant. Um, so a potato cultivar was released to the market in 1967 um, called the Lenape and was then withdrawn in 1970 when they realised that it contained high levels of glycoalkaloids. Oh no! <laughs> um, so now new cultivars have to be tested for glycoalkaloids and have to stay below a certain threshold. Which is worrying. Good. I'm glad that there's now a legal limit to how poisonous the potatoes can be. <laughs> you mean before it was just a free-for-all? Like, technically it was legal to poison someone with a potato? Well, it seems more that people didn't realise that they could be breeding the poison back in. <laughs> Which is fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, potatoes spread very quickly as a food for the working class. Were sort of mm -hmm. grown by, or rather spread by richer people as like, and then you poor people can go and eat that. Because it was a lot easier to grow than grains. Obviously our staple carbohydrates in Europe are grains. Yeah, and takes a lot less processing, I guess. Yeah, um, produces enough food for 10 people per acre of potato plants, which you're never going to get that with something like wheat. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also live almost exclusively on potatoes, as anyone who's right. read or seen The Martian may already be aware of. I, I have not seen The Martian. What happens in The Martian? Does he live on potatoes? He gets stranded on Mars and lives on potatoes. <laughs> I know there's probably a lot more dramatic stuff to it than that, but I would watch a film about... Ben is, is it Ben Affleck? Um, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Okay, I get them confused. I would watch a film about Matt Damon sitting on Mars eating potatoes just for like two hours. Honestly, like... The Martian is very funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was especially popular during the Little Ice Age because 
it was a lot easier to cultivate when it was cold. Uh, yes. So I don't know if you've heard, there's a completely apocryphal but very fun story about Frederick II of Prussia and potatoes. Okay. Um, so um. he was very much for big population increases, more villages, clearing woodland for farmland, all that, all that stuff. Uh-huh. And between 1746 and 1768, he put out 15 different orders for different regions of Prussia where all of the farmers had to start growing potatoes because it would increase the supply of the country. That seems unwise. I mean, when you haven't necessarily tested how well this is going to adapt to your um, country's growing system. Well, yeah, he was he was very for monoculture and things like that. But mm-hmm. I do think we're talking, you know, almost 200 years after their introduction to Europe. Mm-hmm. I think he was, he was pretty certain that they would grow. Okay. Um, but the story it goes that the farmers rejected it, and so he said, oh. actually, potatoes are only for royalty and set guards on the potato fields who were instructed to look the other way. And then the potatoes got poached and growing potatoes actually spread. Completely apocryphal. Okay. <laughs> um, and he's also not the only person that story was told about. But the story started spreading around, um, especially on Reddit and Tumblr a couple of years ago. Right. Oh, is it one of those today I learned kind of things? Yeah. But he he was very pro-potato. He he is known as Potato King. Because his theory was, if we grow more potatoes to feed the peasants, we can reserve grains for the military. And then be all expansionist because that's what European countries do. Okay, that is that is extremely European, eighteenth, nineteenth century. Yeah, that's a mood. Um, I mean, not a particularly relatable mood, but it's a mood. Yeah, and then similar things, similar ideas um, pop up in especially places like Ireland and Scotland. And we will do a separate episode on what happened in Ireland with potatoes because it merits a whole episode of its own, quite frankly. Yeah, no, I think that that deserves a bit more of an in-depth discussion. So yeah, um, I want to talk about the spread of potatoes in France. Because there was a scientist in again, the 18th century, named um, Antoine Augustin Parmentier. That rings a bell. I can't um, remember why. I mean, he's he's a very big name. He um, established the first mandatory smallpox vaccination campaign under okay. Napoleon. Um, he worked on extraction of sugar from sugar beets. Uh, studied refrigeration, which 
Mm -hmm. the 18th century wow so that's pretty cool okay but he was also he was a food scientist and he was one of the first people to actually study the nutritional value of potatoes right so he established that potatoes contain pretty much all like close to all of the vitamins and minerals that you need and basically scientifically proved what a lot of people already knew that you can basically just live on potatoes if you if you need to <laughs> not a fun diet but it'll keep you going no i mean it's it's an odd thing considering they don't look that nutritious it just looks like kind of just just fluffy white carp right mm. But, yeah, secret nutrition. And yeah, a, a lot of potato-containing dishes ended up named after Parmentier. There's um, Hatches Parmentier, which is another name for shepherd's pie. Uh, salad Parmentier, which is potato salad. Puree Parmentier, <laughs> which you can probably guess is mashed potato. <laughs> I'm going to start using all these, though, because they will make me sound a lot fancier. <laughs> Turning up at a barbecue, like, this This isn't potato salad. What do you think I am, a peasant? This is salad pomentier. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Branda de Maru pomentier is one that actually sounds quite nice, is uh, salt, cod, and olive oil Ooh. in mashed potato. Oh. I kind of want to okay. try that, I'll be honest. Yeah. Apparently it's it's quite common to like dunk bread in it, oh. or serve it with potatoes, which I quite like. I feel like Pamentia would approve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the seventeen seventies, he wrote an essay about how potatoes were the best substitute for flour. I guess yeah, potato flour is a thing, isn't it? It absolutely is. But does he mean like potatoes as in just the potatoes not processed into flour? Um, yeah, just potatoes in general. Were there to be a wheat shortage, which there wasn't at the time, okay. but there was later. Ah, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> um, okay, actually I have made uh, a cake with potato instead of flour. Um, it was for a gluten, uh, a person with celiac who couldn't eat gluten. So it was like a lemon cake. It was actually very nice, very moist. Yeah, I've heard of chocolate cake with mashed potato in it as a gluten-free thing mm. as well. Okay. Like not potato flour, just full-on mashed potato in there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, how I made the lemon cake. It was like mashed potato and then all the other things. I imagine it contributes a nice level of moisture. Yeah, definitely. It was quite heavy, like not not a light sponge texture, but it was still definitely cakey. Um, but yeah, so he became interested in potatoes actually after being imprisoned by the Prussian army during the Seven oh. Years' War. Okay. Um, 
Because, as I said, in Prussia, it was food for peasants, whereas in France, it was basically hog feed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he got interested in them. (laughs) Um, Although, interestingly, the cultivation of the potato was illegal in France at the time that he wrote this essay. Because it was they were thought to cause leprosy. Because 18th century science. <laughs> okay. So how come people got leprosy before the potato was introduced to Europe? Multiple things can cause leprosy. <laughs> you know, being struck down by God, sloth, uh, weird smells. You don't be mean to sloths. Um, but he was apparently known for publicity stunts to promote the potato. <laughs> uh, he gave Marie Antoinette a bouquet of potato blossoms. Oh, that's charming. I hope she didn't get too close to them. Well, Marie Antoinette was very into sort of the abstract concept of agriculture. Mm-hmm. She was a hashtag cottagecore queen. I have heard that, yeah. Um, but yeah, and the story about Frederick the Great also exists about Parmentier, about posting armed guards on his potato fields ah, so that people would course. steal the potatoes. Because <laughs> you, you wouldn't steal the potatoes if they were just unguarded, right? That's... Clearly not very valuable. Well, exactly. Like I said, potatoes did help during the famines of the Little Ice Age. Oh. Um, Because, as I said, they were just easier than things like wheat and barley to grow in in these cold conditions. Mm-hmm. Then the 1840s arrive. And we get the European potato failure. Where basically all of the potato crops failed to some extent. So was that due to some kind of disease, plant disease? Yes, um, it's called the potato blight. Hmm. Um, which is a kind of mould that grows on potatoes. Okay. So what, what's the theory? Is that it was spread across, like, on the winds or something? Or from contaminated potatoes? Or, like, how did it get around? Yeah, basically because you'd grow... Because p- most potatoes are basically clones. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you take one from one plant, you plant it, and then it grows more potatoes. Um, They were all vulnerable to this mould when it hit, and then it just spread around. See, I mean, that sounds extremely not good for people who are relying on potatoes. Yeah, the 1840s were actually known as the Hungry 40s because of the potato blight. Does that have anything to do with the, the sort of series of revolutions that went on across Europe. The revolutions of 1848. 
Ah, yes. The those. part of my notes, yes. Right, because I knew about that, but I had no idea it was anything to do with the potato blight. Yeah, there's um, a theory, theory that because at this point most peasants were relying on potatoes to some extent, mm-hmm. and then all the potatoes failed, mm-hmm. everyone was hungry, and when everyone is hungry, they tend to revolt. And let me guess, the governments didn't do very much about everyone being hungry. Um, Not about people being hungry. Although some social change did pop up. Um, So I just want to read out the list of places which had 1848 revolutions or rebellions. Okay. Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, Hungary, Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, Romania, Belgium, Ireland, Spain, some parts of Britain, Lithuania, the Isle of Man, (laughs) large swathes of Latin America. But... You know, some of these revolts did lead to long-lasting consequences. In Hungary, it's credited with the freeing of the serfs. Oh, wow. Um, It's largely credited with um, helping towards the unification of Italy and Germany. Right. Um, The formation of the Second French Republic. Okay. Like, all of this stuff. Obviously, a lot of it was in the works anyway, mm-hmm. but it was kind of the spark in the powder keg for a lot of stuff. Yeah, that sounds like it would set things off. Yeah, it's um, known as the Springtime of Nations, apparently, 1848. Ooh. Because, yeah, it was basically pretty much all of Europe and several other places just going, you know what, we're hungry and we hate rich people, let's do something about it. Uh Uh-huh. That is where a lot of change seems to come from. Well, yeah. Like... Mass mortality events do seem to lead to a lot of social change. Hint, hint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I should mention, just because it's the only constant I haven't mentioned yet, um, potatoes did spread to um, Asia and Australasia, obviously, partly through uh, colonialism in places like Australia and New Zealand and partly through trade. Um, population growth in the during the Qing dynasty made it quite popular because mm-hmm. again you can feed a lot of people with potatoes. Mm-hmm. There are some varieties of like potato-like plants that are native to Asia because my mum grows this. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a Himalayan small lemony potato thing 
Yeah, and there's uh, Taro as well, which shows up a lot in mm-hmm. um, Indonesian and Japanese, especially food, which is like a purple sweet potato type thing. Yeah, I've seen. I've unfortunately as yet never eaten any, but I've seen pictures of amazing sweets made with taro. I've had taro pudding. How is it? I wasn't a fan, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I tried it, and that's the important thing. To <laughs> try new things. Definitely. Like I, I see why people like it, but I don't like it. I think a lot of things are just. A taste that if you grow up with it, you love it, but otherwise it takes a bit of acquiring. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm going to end there, I think. And I think you said next episode you'll go more in-depth on the Hungry Forties and specifically the um, Irish potato famine? Uh, I will tackle that one. But in the meantime, it's time for local larder. Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Probably Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real, and what is the best rules for an OP, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also YouTube. Or check out our Tumblr and Twitter. It is. Um, and I'm going to keep on the Hobbit theme and talk a little bit about seed cake. Oh. Yes. Um, which, as far as I've been able to make out, is, I mean, quite quite a traditional British thing. Um, the seed in question is normally caraway seeds, which, of course, are used in lots of different places around the world. But um, It's like Goosner Cakes. Yes, like even Lancashire. <laughs> but even uh, the unsophisticated wilds of Lancashire. Yeah. The wild backwards remote <laughs> places of Lancashire. <laughs> um but seed cake as a thing is um quite a traditional British food. So yeah, very local larder. Um now, seed cake is mentioned in The Hobbit, um, quite near the beginning of The Hobbit, actually, in An Unexpected Party, um, when the dwarves all come to Bilbo's house and they're eating all his food and Barling gets there and he asks for some seed cake. Um, and, uh, yeah, asks if Bilbo has any seed cake and Bilbo says lots. Uh, Bilbo found himself answering to his surprise, and he found himself scuttling off too to the cellar to fill a pint beer mug and then to the pantry to fetch two beautiful round seed cakes which he had baked that afternoon for his after-supper morsel. Which definitely should be a thing more, I think, having an after-supper morsel. So... Hobbits do life right. Mm-hmm. So Bilbo Baggins is a baker of seed cake, um, which is a sort of fairly dense cake containing usually caraway seeds, which give it a sort of anise-y type flavour. But 
I there is some controversy over the seed. Like I've seen a few recipes that say it doesn't necessarily matter what seed you use as long as it's like some kind of you know anise, caraway, cardamom. Um, type of thing but then some of them are like no it's got to be caraway otherwise it isn't a seed cake it's just a cake with seeds in it <laughs> so passionate about food it's beautiful I know it's, it's wonderful humans are great um, <laughs> but um, the cake in this form doesn't seem to be like the original version of it as far as I can tell it seems like the cake goes back quite a long way there's cakes that are described that sound like this kind of thing in um medieval sources mm -hmm. but we don't have any recipes until sort of the 17th century um so there's one in Gervais Markham's English Huswith um and there's actually two in The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy by Hannah Glass. Um, which I like because she has a recipe for a cheap seed cake and a rich seed cake. I like that. Yeah, it kind of covers all your bases, but they're, they're very much different ends of the spectrum. Like there's no in-between. <laughs> um, the cheap seed cake is sounds like more of a bready thing like a bready scone type thing like there's no eggs in it um and it's it's leavened with yeast so yeah kind of a little bit more more bready really mm -hmm. um but it has caraway seeds in she says to put some caraway seeds in just before it goes in the oven and the rich seed cake, or the nun's cake, uses 35 eggs and four pounds of butter. Slightly different. And six ounces of caraway seeds. Is there an explanation for why this is a nun's cake? No, there isn't. It just says... <laughs> <laughs> feeding a lot of nuns, I guess. It's just the cake for nuns, obviously. Obviously, this is what you feed nuns. <laughs> um, and she also says you can put cinnamon and ambergris in it which I'm not exactly sure what ambergris is do you know? oh yes we've had it, it has come up before okay um, yeah so it's a, a waxy substance produced by the digestive system of the sperm whale um, okay that's not what I was expecting Often used in perfumes. That's not what I was expecting it to be. No, it's it's a weird thing. There's we have records of one of the childers, I don't remember which one, eating it with eggs. Why? Rich people. <laughs> I can't think of any reason. I can't think of a reason that would taste or smell nice. Apparently it doesn't smell nice. What? <laughs> People really will buy things just because they're expensive. Yeah, well, ambergris is on the master list, so we will cover it eventually. <laughs> okay, I would. That's good. I would like to know more and why. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, so she also says in this recipe, um, you put the caraway seeds in, beating it up all the time for two hours together. Two hours! Mrs. Glass. What? That what? That does. I don't understand how you're doing this unless you've got like 10 servants and they're all taking turns. <laughs> Maybe you pass it around the nuns. I don't know. <laughs> like it's entirely um, possible that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. And it takes three hours in the oven as well. But I guess if it's the olden days and your oven's just on all day anyway, that doesn't yeah. matter. Um, yeah. So that is our 17th century. Um, or rather with Hannah Glass, 18th century seed cake. And then it sort of becomes, going into the Victorian period, a more a bit more sort of traditionally cakey, um, more like a kind of tea loaf, I guess, because the all of the older sources seem to describe it as a round cake, like in The Hobbit. Um, and then... Most of the ones I've seen from like modern recipes are loaf shaped. So I don't know when that happened. Um, I guess if it's a loaf shape, you can cut off slices more easily and put butter in it or whatever if you want to. Yeah. Um, but um, it seems like in the more sort of traditional, like farmhousey kind of seed cake was still a bit smaller around. So maybe that's where the hobbit seed cakes being round came from. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that Bilbo would just make individual serving ones rather than a big loaf. It does. It does. Alone? It does. Although, like, I don't know, if you're baking cake anyway, it might make sense. But then seed cake is known for keeping a little bit longer than other, th other cakes. Um, yeah, I guess if you have to slice into it, it's not going to last as long. Mm-mm. Um, yeah, and um, it's it's a little bit sort of denser and moister. It's not light and fluffy like a sponge that doesn't last as long. So, mm. um, so it's a good it's a good like farmhouse staple, really. And I think it was part of a lot of people's childhoods in the twentieth century, which is why it appears in these things. Um, it's kind of a comfort food type thing. Um, but normally continuously flavoured with caraway seeds, I find. Um, although, according to a recipe I found that claims to take inspiration from uh, the English Huswif and another cookbook, um, you can also use anise, coriander, cardamom or caraway or something, something that, you know, puts a nice flavour in it. Although I'm not sure about coriander seed cake. Yeah, that seems like a very different flavour to the others. Yeah, that seems like <laughs> the advice is just put flavour in. Doesn't matter what flavour, put sugar in flavour. Yeah, I feel like fennel might work, because you get that in goosner cakes sometimes, which are oh, normally a caraway. It might, yeah. Like, it sounds kind of a sort of nutty type flavour, possibly. Mm. Um, yeah, so, and oh, and as you have just reminded me... Um, a cake does not necessarily mean cake cake when you're thinking historically. Um, so 
the kind of early round cakes could be the kind of things that you would bake like on on a bake stone or like on the hearth or something much more scony or more biscuity like a guzna cake or yeah pretty much I, th I think probably mileage varies depending on what you have to bake it with yeah I feel like for a long time cake just meant handheld carbohydrate yeah and you could have savory cakes as well right so yeah I mean a, a small a small bread like a bread roll like one, one of the regional names for that is a balm cake or a bread cake. Uh-huh. So yeah, that is that is the sort of small but storied history of the seed cake. Um and I have to say it does make me think comforting things. Possibly because it's because of its association with the Hobbit, but I think I also associate it with like traditional tea time. Mm. Um you have just made me want goosner cakes. Yeah. Although seed cake and ale apparently was popular in um in bygone days as well, so I mean that's just, that's just more carbs, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Keep you going. I mean, yeah, that'll keep you warm. Um but I think cake cakes and ale was something that you might have in a pub as well, so Oh, we should definitely bring that back. Absolutely. Little plate of seed cakes on the bar instead of a bowl of nuts. But uh, yeah, I will link a seed cake recipe to the Twitter when this episode comes out in case anyone feels like making one for themselves. I can recommend it. They are tasty and it will make you feel like a hobbit. Can you send that to me as well, please? Yes. So yeah, thank you for listening. If you have an episode suggestion or want to say hi or anything like that um you can email bread and thread podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at bread and thread for any retweets of things that we find interesting or related to food history um things that we have been doing and teasers for upcoming episodes as well as pictures of things we talk about on the podcast and if you want to support us help, help us buy caraway seeds um, oh, I have so many caraway seeds. I ordered them from that Whole Foods online website. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize how much it would be. I don't need to buy any right now, but I'm I'm sure we could find other things to spend the money on. Although I am a little bit jealous of the amount of caraway seeds you have now. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we have a Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/BreadandThread, where you can get access to a Discord server where we chat about things that we're, we're making and baking and about the episodes. Uh, there are monthly Patreon recipes available to £5 or above level patrons. And if you join at the £10 or above level, we will make a bonus episode about anything you like. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, Bread and Thread, where you can find YouTube versions of our podcast episodes. And we also have a Tumblr where we reblog things that are interesting to us. And do we have anything else? I believe that's it. Um, okay. Yeah. So thank you for listening and we will see you next time. <laughs>